0: Due to harsh language and violent content, listener discretion is advised. The podcast which you are about to hear is an account of the horror suffered by a group of three adults, Stuart, Arnie, and Brock. Though they had experienced horror before, had they lived very, very long lives they could not have expected... Nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and the macabre as they were to see with this retrospective series. For them, a movie review podcast became a six piece symphony of terror. The events of this viewing were to lead to one of the most bizarre podcasts in the annals of Internet history the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Retrospective Series.
1: Today we are discussing *The Texas Chainsaw Massacre*, starring Marilyn Burns, Paul Partain, Edwin Neal, and Gunnar Hansen, directed by Toby Hooper. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing.
2: Stuart in L.A. And this is Brock, and we
1: are here back with *Texas Chainsaw Massacre*. Leading up to the wait, we're not leading up to anything. We're just doing this because we want to.
2: I think this started out as a dare. (laughs) As I recall, somewhere in the heated arguments of Nightmare on Elm Street, the series we recorded in the spring, I don't remember why... (laughs) But for some reason, it became an aesthetic debate as to which Texas Chainsaw do you prefer, the original or the remake and slick Hollywood versus grimy indie and all of that. And I believe that it started with you and me having a throwdown saying we were going to settle this debate once and for all for Halloween.
1: Well, I'm here representing slick Hollywood, I guess, which normally isn't a good thing, but I'm still happy to do it.
0: And Stuart, you're on the side of the independent grimy indie then. Definitely. And I'm right that- down the middle, because I've never seen any of these before. So I'm, again, the newbie to the series, and I'm glad for that. I think it's always a good viewpoint.
1: Now, while you're the newbie to the series, I'm coming in kind of as a half-newbie. I didn't watch this movie much at all. I'm going to be seeing many of these sequels for the first time. Oh, I only saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1987, thanks to the Mark Harmon movie, Summer School. So... <laughs> In in summer school, you had Chainsaw and Dave, who were big into Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I was big into Fangoria and slick horror at the time, Nightmare on Elm Street. They were so up on Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I raced to the video store to rent it. And went, this kind of sucks. Didn't watch it again for about 20 years. The remake comes out, and I, for some reason, convinced myself it was like a shot-for-shot remake of the original. My wife and I were going on and on about how great the original was. We rushed out and bought it, and then watched it and went, this kind of sucks. And so here I am watching it, actually, for the third and fourth time for this retrospective series to find out if I still agree with my former self and say, this kind of sucks.
2: You know what the weird thing is, like you Arnie, I was a big horror fan, but this isn't our generation. I didn't watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre until well into being saturated with everything else because in the 80s, this series was was kind of old school. You knew about it. It was notorious. I knew it more as a video game that I wanted to get for Atari (laughs) that I could never find than as an actual movie. And I think I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 long before I saw the original. Leatherface is famous, but he was not really... Known to me. I mean, I, I knew him from the pages of Fangoria for the history that he plays into with the slasher films, but honestly. I I had no love for the character, and when I think, like you, I saw the movie original, it seemed dated, it seemed poorly done, and I wasn't that taken with it. I returned to the movie maybe sometime around when the remake came out, and I'm not sure exactly why, because I didn't see the remake in theaters, but I, I did find it to be a much more engaging, horrific, and funny movie now than I did back then. And so, yes, I am the fan of the old school. I know the first two movies. I did see the remake, but none of these other ones have I seen before. It will be a largely new experience for me, at least for half the films.
0: Well, that's great. So all three of us were actually seeing movies for the first time. Definitely.
2: I have no idea what to expect from Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 at all. I couldn't even tell you what the poster looked like.
0: So, Stuart, why
1: don't you start us off as the fan of the old films with a plot summary?
2: Well, you know, this is the inspirational story of a displaced slaughterhouse worker and his mentally challenged brother overcoming poverty and a speech impediment to create the world's best barbecue and bring their dysfunctional (laughs) family together at the table, right? Like, that's... That's pretty much it. Right. I mean, yeah, there's this like subplot about a van full of trespassing hippies that are on this quest to retouch with their grandfather's desecrated grave. And one of them, Sally, she kind of refuses to stay for dinner and has this really dramatic exit. But whatever. There's a big dance at the end and everyone's fine. That's about it. I think I think if we wanted to go into any more detail, we should go scene by scene through the movie.
1: All right, why don't we go scene by scene? But I really hope our listeners have seen this movie (laughs) because you just made it sound almost like Lars and the Real Girl with a chainsaw.
2: Well, you know, there are many ways of perceiving this movie, and I think with a name like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you're prepared for a grisly torture chest, you know, like a a faces of death. Like, this is going to be snuff. This is going to be the most intense, horrific, gut-wrenching thing you've ever seen. And what's surprising about the movie, at least to me as an adult watching it, is its subversiveness, its humor, it's kind of a comedy. Really?
0: I didn't find Uh, this one to be a comedy that much.
2: I did some research into this for this
1: podcast, and I know that Toby Hooper says the same thing. I watched this movie twice for this podcast. I don't see the humor at all.
0: Yeah, I have to back up Arnie on that one. I don't think this one has a lot of humor in it. I I think there's humorous parts. I think there's some humorous interactions and things like that. But maybe you're defining comedy different than I think comedy is. What do you mean by that?
1: (laughs) Maybe you're defining comedy as something unfunny.
2: <laughs> that was the nicest slam anyone has ever got <laughs> given me, Brock. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we'll talk about it when we get to the end of the movie, but I found the interactions. Once we finally see this family of killers, these cannibals, see how they interact around the dinner table... And see their interplay. It's not that different from All in the Family. I mean, it really does have an almost sitcom approach. And Arnie, I'm a little surprised, you as the fan of Rob Zombie, how you cannot recognize the white trash humor of this. I mean, it's pretty evident to me that Rob Zombie takes 99% of his inspiration from this original film.
1: Again, I'm going to disagree. Zombie has come out and said he's a huge fan of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and cites it as a big influence on his work.
2: Duh. Yeah. (laughs) I
1: I personally think when you're talking about the Dare Table scene, yes, I, I do see some level of trash culture, but... It's not comedy when you've got the hitchhiker just going, you're only the cook, you're only the cook, and then the other guy kind of complaining about how he doesn't take no joy in killing. It's not comedy. It's not Evil Dead too funny. You know, it's really dark horror, and I think that this movie really strives to unsettle, not to make you titter with laughter. I completely
0: Uh, agree.
2: Well, you know, lest I look like a completely insane person and and laugh at the victimization and brutality against young flesh, let's just get into the movie and I can point out specific examples as I see fit.
1: This sounds perfect. We start off with John Larroquette, Dan Fielding
2: himself. Do people even know who John Larroquette is? I feel like nobody knows what Night Court is anymore.
1: Everybody knows John Larroquette. He just won an Emmy a couple of years ago for his work on The Practice. He was on Boston Legal. There was, of course, the John Larroquette show. He was on The West
0: Wing a couple of times.
2: Okay. I clearly have not been keeping up with John Larroquette, and I apologize.
1: <laughs> and lest you forget, this is our second John Larroquette film it now playing
2: in the retrospective format. Thank you, Search for Spock. Huh? Oh, yeah, was... let's try. that's right. That's yeah. right. He was one of the side Klingons. Yes.
0: Yes. The one who did not deserve to live. But did. <laughs> Anyways, we have an interesting way to open up this movie. I thought the voiceover was kind of effective, in, in fact, to demonstrate what they were trying to get across with this story of it being a true story of horror in Texas. Did you think it was true? I kind of did, a little bit. I thought it was based on true events. You know how they always say based on true events, ripped from today's headlines. But then, of course, I found out it was completely fabricated.
1: Actually, no, it was based on a true event. Yeah, Ed Geist or something? Ed Gein, the foremost serial killer of our time with his human skin lamps and upon which Psycho, as we always refer to, the grandfather of horror was based much more closely than this.
2: Yeah, but they're definitely cheating here. They definitely want to give the impression that this was an actual occurrence that happened to a vanload of kids. and, and like that
0: Blair Witch did. I think
2: that kind of thing is easier to do way back in the 70s when people are seeing this at a drive-in and they're not so wired into pop culture. And literally, all they may know about a movie going into it is what the press material tells them. I, I would have believed it then. I think I did believe it growing up that, that, that there was something like this. And of course, now with Wikipedia, a couple clicks and you know exactly the root of the inspiration. Ed Gein in the 1950s, yes, sort of was the blueprint for Psycho, Silence of the Lambs, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He's your go-to guy for cannibal skin-wearing creeps. That said, I enjoyed the opening immensely. I really liked, not so much the narration, but I really liked the way that we're introduced to this atonal score. It kind of sounds like, I don't know, violin bows going against creaky door handles. (laughs) I, I can't quite tell what it is.
1: I really don't think there was a single musical instrument in this score. It was clanging metal.
2: Yeah, it was very atonal, and, and Toby Hooper, who did record a lot of the score... In
1: his own kitchen, probably.
2: Yes, yes, he did a lot of experience. I think he described sawing a tambourine in half to get one of the signature sound effects. It's all very effective, and the way that it's sort of this striking score matched with these flashes of a camera bulb, and, and these just quick images of a desecrated body.
0: I thought the photographs with that sound certainly got you the tone of what was going on, and then you go right into the movie, it, it, it kind of tells you, oh, it's coming. Because they, they derivate from that so much when they first get into the movie. That opening scene really does stay with you in the back of your head, which is why I thought it was such a great way to open the movie.
1: I love the flash effects because a- as a horror movie watcher in the 21st century, I can tell a cheap mannequin when I see it. But by only giving it to me for a fraction of a second at a time, it made it look far better than it finally did at the end long shot.
2: What is that long shot? I, to this day on freeze frame, I cannot tell what I am looking at. It looks like a man that has been impaled on a headstone with a baby in his arms, maybe? I thought there
1: were two corpses kind of intertwined on a headstone.
2: Right, right. But I thought the other, I thought the second corpse was actually something smaller, like a child or maybe a baby. I really couldn't remember what this was supposed to be. A question, is it the grandfather? Is that the
1: grandfather they're coming to see? It is not, because that's why they're going. It's because the grandfather is buried in that grave, and they're worried or researching or something to see if the, their grandfather was desecrated. And they get there, and they're told quite clearly that their grandfather was left alone, and they can visit the grave, and it was their grandfather is fine so it is sally and franklin's grandfather and they have three friends who come along for the ride and i have to say those are some good friends because you know Stuart, if if your grandfather's grave is desecrated i might come along but one of my co-workers probably not so much
2: Well, you know, like a lot of horror movie scenarios, this is all uh, a tease to get busy. I mean, I I feel like these kids weren't there to be emotionally supportive of their friends. They're there to have a good time, smoke a little, drink a little, make a little love. Yeah, road trip, baby. Road trip. It was a little unclear. I gotta say, it wasn't until this... Viewing that, I even understood that they were going to see the grandfather's tomb, that it just almost seemed like happenstance that they ended up where that they were, that they were on some kind of road trip to the grandfather's house. That's what I always thought. But yeah, there is this sort of oddly cut in there sequence where she does go and walk around the headstones and you do hear a voiceover saying it's all fine. But it was so disjointed, it was a little confusing even now watching it.
1: Well, let's get to the point of this. What you're seeing here is an amateurish film from a talented man who would go on to do far better. In this entire movie, Toby Hooper shows flashes of brilliance, such as the flashbulbs in the beginning, pun totally intended, but... Overall, this film is
2: a film school nightmare, and it's just poorly shot,
1: Poorly
0: Whoa! Oh, fight,
2: fight, disagree. fight. This film is fantastically photographed. And if you can't see that, you are crazy. The man that photographed this movie was asked to come back and photograph the remake because he is that good. And the work that he did on here with the low budget, it's incredible.
1: Right. It's, it's incre- the budget that's what's killing it. He did great with what he had, but he didn't have much. They're, he's using the ambient light that they have around them because they can't afford lighting rigs. And so many times, things just aren't in frame or aren't in proper focus. I just think that... You know, Toby Hooper showed here that he had what it takes to make a real movie, but this isn't that real movie.
2: I actually Uh, think this is probably the best that he would ever do, Poltergeist excluded, because I think Steven Spielberg actually made that movie.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I I think you're on his side because Poltergeist is one of your all-time favorites.
2: It was certainly a childhood favorite. I haven't seen it in years, but I don't credit Toby Hooper with much of that. And when we do our Poltergeist retrospective, and I know that we will, we will talk about the origins of that movie. Movie, But I think as far as his solo, no one else can take away from him. This is his shining moment here. I mean, and I can't believe that you're saying that the amateurishness is a distraction or a negative. I mean, I think part of what makes this film work so well is how raw it feels, how that quality is it i mean that is what all these other filmmakers are striving to do with their hollywood budgets rob zombie wishes he could make a movie feel this raw and this alive
1: he wishes he could have his disjointed a voiceover
2: that sounds poorly recorded while she walks around the graves yeah, did you see Grindhouse? Yes, that is a style that all of these new filmmakers want to do. That retro, John Carpenter, Toby Hooper, Grindhouse look, you better believe it. Tarantino, they all want this.
0: I have no loyalty to Toby Hooper at all. Like Stuart, you, you said about the Poltergeist thing. I thought this thing was fantastically shot. The choices they made. Some of the shots they actually got with the sunlight, the sunset. Amazing stuff. Unbelievable. There's a, there's a great shot of the van in the right-hand corner of the screen and the beautiful blue sky. And then they, I think and when they pick up the hitchhiker for the first time. The variety of shots, the, the different kinds of shots, when they cut, they cut for a reason. They had close-ups. They had far shots. They interspersed it. They got all that coverage, and they told the story. When we get later in the film, when they get to the house... There was a long shot of Leatherface, not only with the, when the kid comes to the door, but when he's going to the window, petrified out of his mind. Those shots are fantastic. They tell a story. They paint a picture. And yes, because they had low budget. You know, we hear all these great stories about how Steven Spielberg had to make Jaws work. Because the shark wasn't working. And, and out of the desperation of the situation, brilliance was made. Well, this is what we're seeing here. They had nothing to work with, and they had to find a way to make it work. The same thing, that's what Stuart and I were talking about with the original Halloween. This thing was very, very well shot. And it, for me, what made this movie work at all, for most of the movie, was how they this movie built and built and built and built. And a reason it did build to the ending was because of the way it was shot. One of the reasons, anyway.
2: I'm wondering if maybe something you don't like about it is that it feels dirty. And I love that about this movie. It feels like you can literally see the fingerprints from people touching the negative on the thing. It's, it's got a real visceral quality, and I think you're knocking that as being low-budget and thus inferior to something that is made with a higher budget. But that aesthetic works for this grimy movie and this grimy story. And I think that my case will be even proven more when we get around to the remake and they have a lot more money and it's not nearly as effective.
1: I just think that in a lot of cases here – it was point the camera, let's do it in one take because it's what we have time for. And, you know, I if this was a job application, Toby Hooper pulls a Kevin Smith and pulls together $50,000 and films this, yeah, I'd see that there's ta- a talented guy here who I would hire to make a professional film. But I equate this much along the lines of Sam Raimi's Evil Dead, the very first one. Both are classics in their own right. Both were made on extraordinarily small budgets. Both went on to have somewhat campy sequels, but both originals, you know, I'd say Texas Chainsaw is even rougher than the first Evil Dead by far. And this movie just, it feels to me like a couple steps above Stuart from when we were seven and running around with my dad's silent camera.
2: Uh, We never had a shot as good as the scene where Pam gets off the swing set and walks towards the house. They have a dolly shot. How can you say this is unprofessional? They have a smooth dolly shot that follows her, you know, her her body in frame. She's nearly naked walking up to the house, and it's looming forward. It's an incredible shot, and I'm sorry. There's no shot like that in Friday the 13th, the original, or Nightmare on Elm Street, the original. Also low-budget movies that you have supported more than I'm hearing you support this one.
1: Okay. <laughs> I mean, you're going to hold up one shot that I don't remember. (laughs) Well, what I'm saying
2: is maybe you're dismissing something because you don't like the griminess of it. Because you were too quick to say, oh, this is a student film because they clearly don't have money. And what I'm asking you to do is to think about it as a raw piece of meat that they have cut perfectly. I mean, the movie... Is what it is. It's not meant to be smooth. It's not meant to be clean. It is meant to be this dirty, nasty thing. And that style would not come through if they didn't have these constraints, if they didn't have these talented people working with very little money because there is real talent up there and it's coming through even though they're working with nothing.
1: Well, to bring it all the way back around to the grave scene, if they're so talented, how come we still don't know what was
2: going on there, you know? I don't think they had the coverage for that. And honestly, I think that they could almost cut everything about the grave out. I mean, truly, the movie could start with a dead armadillo on the highway and then running into a hitchhiker I don't know that you needed any of that other stuff it does create that sense of oh this must be a true story because a newscaster is reporting about it and that image of the two skeletons entwined on the headstone certainly has a visceral shock to it but honestly I don't know that they needed it it's a neat uh, opening but it really has almost nothing to do with the rest of the movie so to your point I would agree with you I guess which is that it it's not necessarily a good setup for what is to come
1: no in fact this whole thing is about two kids really a bit more interested in genealogy than any teenagers i've ever seen because after visiting their grandfather's grave they're talking about the slaughterhouse where their grandfather worked and then trying to find their grandfather's old house and swimming pool just really into the whole grandfather thing
2: (laughs) well i mean i i kind of get that i mean I, i let me put it this way not so far back in my family tree is some rural southern roots And it is fascinating when you go back and see the old house and walk through the old things. There is something really, to know where you come from to see it, I mean, I get that. I think the movie suffers a little bit from the sense that I never really felt like Sally and Franklin were brother and sister. They don't really look alike. They don't really have a chemistry that reminded me of siblings. They don't fight like siblings. But as far as a dilemma or a problem that they're trying to figure out, what happened to their grandfather's grave, where did he come from?
0: sure I buy that I also picked up that they went to this house when they were children so the fact then after they found out the grave was undisturbed since they're so close let's go to see the old house maybe the swimming hole is still there maybe we can you know see where we were as youths so they can rekindle whatever that feeling was of their youth revisit the past a bit and that's where I thought the movie went as opposed to just the genealogy thing after the whole grave thing ended
1: you see i didn't get that but that would have made a lot more sense to me the whole let's go back to where we were as kids versus the he had a place around here somewhere let's go see it
0: you well, i think it's combined there and so when they get to the hitchhiker in the van and they compare notes on the slaughterhouse stuff this and that it kind of tied in there a little bit too because franklin thinks he knows all about it because he heard all these stories And then this other kid comes in and and talks to him about it there. I have to agree with you, by the way, that I didn't buy them as siblings at all. Although there was a great scene later in the movie when Franklin is almost confronting his sister about uh, he doesn't want her to leave him behind and stuff. And that scene with her, I thought she did very well against him. He playing it so big and she playing it so like a sibling. That's the only time I thought they were really siblings at all in the whole movie. I, I agree with you there completely, Stuart.
1: Well, let's talk about these two main characters. They're the top build. Even though I think perhaps the family of Leatherface is more main, but we've got Sally and Franklin, and honestly, I will put this out there: Franklin is much of the reason I dislike this film. He's in it too long, and every minute he's in it, he's the Jar Jar Binks of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
0: He was to me the, the in the third movie of Friday the Thirteenth, the curly-haired guy. You know I'm talking about the, um,
2: yeah, the fat that one. Yeah. I mean, it's the, fa- it's the curse of the fat man in the horror movie. If you're a fat man in a horror movie, you will inevitably not get a girl and whine the whole time and die horribly. I mean, that's just how it's meant for you. I mean, that's Let me ask just you guys a question. A
0: Why was Franklin in the wheelchair?
2: Why did they write a character to be in a wheelchair? I think— yes. It was not a cliche back then that this actually invented the cliche that you would see in, what, Friday the 13th, too, and and lots of other horror movies. I think that if you were to go to a drive-in in 1974, 75, and see this movie, you would think Franklin was the star and that Franklin was going to live because mm-hmm. they would never dare kill a man in a wheelchair. Now, of course, our modern sensibilities, he's marked dead meat from the minute we see him. <laughs> but, but, but I think at the time, there would be real empathy with his condition. He would feel bad that everyone else is having a good time and that he's suffering, and that you just couldn't imagine a movie that would take out brutality on someone with that handicap.
0: He's a sitting duck, yeah. But, you know, we had this conversation in Friday the 13th Part 2, remember I said something about they killed the guy in the wheelchair and he fell down the stairs, and I found that surprising to kill the guy in the wheelchair? I Mm -hmm. knew the whole time they were going to kill Franklin here. And I thought because you know he was such an annoying character that they had to kill him. I had never doubted in my mind he was going to get it. But when when we watched Friday the 13th Part 2, I was surprised they killed him. Isn't that weird?
2: Well, you've been educated, Brock. You you didn't watch a lot of (laughs) horror movies when we started these podcasts. Friday the 13th Part 2 was your second podcast. Now how How many series have we done? I mean, you're just savvy. You're on to it. I think if we had started here, (laughs) uh, I just think we need a new newbie. Yeah, (laughs) we do. You're not newbie anymore. You're tainted. You're tainted, Brock. Okay. But yes, there's no doubt that today it's obvious. But I think if we can put ourselves in the mentality of the time and realize that there were no slasher movies at all, that you would not perceive him as being the dead meat that he obviously is.
1: Franklin in the wheelchair. Is it a PC reason that I felt guilty, Stuart? You said there's a lot of comedy in this. Franklin gets out of the van to take a piss and rolls down a hill and... I found it to be high comedy, but then I felt bad about laughing about
2: it. It's hard to know how that was exactly supposed to play out. I mean, I think it introduces him as a pathetic character. I mean, you never not think about Franklin as being pathetic, even though he's a little smarter than I think some of the other people like he knows about the slaughterhouse and he's not bothered by the smell the way some of them are. And I don't know. There's something they could play with the character there that they didn't develop enough. But for the most part, he is just
0: kind of pathetic. And that was certainly him at his most vulnerable I also found this to be an incredibly educational horror movie because I learned more about slaughterhouses and the processes of old versus the processes of then new than I ever thought I'd ever learn in a horror movie. I came out of knowing something. It's like how it's made.
1: Now, this gets me to one of my big points. The whole first half talks about how slaughterhouses work, and then we see these people are just treating humans as cattle. Is this movie just pro-vegetarian propaganda? (laughs) Because that's what I think. I think that this whole thing is, how would you feel if you were the cow? Eat a vegetable.
2: I think that what they're really saying is something much more anti-American. I feel like the source of this movie isn't so much that it's horrible that we eat meat, but it's horrible that we condone slaughter and eat it, but not know where it comes from. And that point is made directly at the end of the movie, in what I would call one of the comedy bits. I think that's part of the the horror of this, is that we're having our way of life thrown back at us. I mean, that's, in Texas certainly, there is no such thing as a vegetarian. I mean, it just doesn't exist. Uh, That is, a cattle produced country. I mean, it's really a country all into itself. It would be infathomable that these kids didn't grow up eating hamburgers and meat and and just not having a second thought about it. Yeah, it's definitely a way of having your values thrown back at you. Your family values thrown back at you. I definitely think that's a theme in this movie. But I I don't know that there's a mo- the moral is so clear cut that it would be about if we all just stopped eating meat, then we wouldn't deserve this fate. I don't think it's a punishment for being meat eaters. I think it's a punishment for being hypocrites and that's really what the movie is about
1: in what way other than the meat are we being hypocritical I'm not seeing
2: that well you know you, you start with a family and it's presumably a wholesome on-the-road trip and you end up meeting this other family that lives just beyond where they grew up and they seemingly have all the values that we do but they're perverted, and it's thrown back at us. And it really is a satirical portrait of the American family that we're looking at. When I say comedy, what I really mean is satire. I, I really hope no one watches this movie you know, laughing and slapping their knee and saying that's hilarious. It isn't. It's ghastly. It's horrific. But the intent behind it, the ghoulishness, the glee of it, the horror just below that is a satirical mind at work.
0: What is majorly horrific about that is that when we first meet the hitchhiker in the car, that guy gave them plenty of opportunities and then plenty of reasons to kick his ass to the curb, and they still kept him in the car. And it just it blew my mind when they didn't throw the guy out of the car until after he cut Franklin. It shows to you that there's a whole different world out there that you are not aware of, regardless. And take a clue that maybe things are not the way they should be, and maybe you should just turn right around and go home. It was amazing how naive these kids were. But they were about going the home Rock.
2: I mean, that's the point is they were going home. They were going back to their roots and seeing where they came from. And what they see is where they came from. And it's pretty ugly. I agree with you. I mean, you pick up a hitchhiker. That's just one of those things that could only happen in the 70s. Hitchhiking. Has anyone ever stuck out their thumb and gotten a ride that way from 1980 on?
1: Yes. Yes, they have. Because in today's economy, I've noticed the amount of hitchhikers has grown
2: tremendously. Really, that's fascinating to me yeah. because it just seems like that was something that was purely a part of the spirit of the 60s and 70s and that the whole idea of peace, love, and harmony thing, the hippie ethos is what we're really talking about. Yeah, they're doing the hippie thing. They're picking up a guy who looks like he really needs some help. He looks like he could really use a break, and that means we should give him that break. I mean, that's just not my mentality when I'm driving. If I see a guy like that on the side of the road, you hit the pedal to the metal, and you keep going and go, there by the grace of God. But, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just who they are and and you know what maybe they wanted some dope off of him maybe they thought <laughs> he would tell them some good stories or or you know who who knows but it was pretty clear by the time that he's tries to sell them the photograph and then sets it on fire when they won't pay for it that this guy was bad news. But how do you extract yourself from that situation? It's You don't want to be a jerk. You know, there's still that... He hasn't done anything wrong, per se. How do you get a guy out once you let him into your car? I, I mean, I get that. That's a slippery thing to do.
0: He had blood on his face when he walked in the car, did you not? That was a birthmark. Oh, was it? Yes.
2: Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it wasn't
0: blood. Oh, okay. That actor
1: who played the hitchhiker, though, really portrayed mania in such a way that i cannot imagine holding a real conversation with him at any point in his life i think he really
2: sold me on the role because he seemed really nuts yeah yes yeah he was good and I mean even when he starts cutting things he takes Franklin's knife and it's like he wants to understand Franklin through his knife he's like oh how does your knife cut let me try it on my palm hey not bad well what do you think of mine you know like it's almost like they become blood brothers in that scene it's like how he understands other people is the way that they can inflict violence on him and he in turn can inflict on them it's really kind of a again I would use the word for lack of a better one kind of a comedic scene even though you're not laughing when you're watching it. It's it's horrific, but it's an interesting character. And I don't know, it's it's a cliche now. Like so much of this movie, you're watching it now, you're like, what's the big deal? He's obviously going to be part of the family down the road and he's nuts and why wouldn't they kick him out? But at the time, I don't think it would be so obvious.
1: When I watched this movie again, or the first time, I didn't realize there was a family. The reputation of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is Leatherface, and if you come to it backwards, and you know Freddy and Jason and Leatherface, you don't think about the family, or even suspect that there is a family. So when I first saw this, and when I saw it again, even though I knew in the remake there was a whole family, I didn't understand how this guy was connected. And so that was a good surprise for me. And I wonder if in the early 70s, if you saw the trailers and the guy with the chainsaw, and you're waiting for the chainsaw, if this crazy guy with a knife does come a bit out of left field. You're but.
2: now getting into something that's really, I think, making this series unique and that is it's about a whole family unit that kills that their whole way of bonding and understanding the world and the lessons they teach generation to generation is violence and you're right normally the M.O. is it's a man acting alone usually in a mask, because he has hate in his heart for women or teenagers or, or sex but this is definitely a new take on it and I think it's what makes this series special I also think it can't be discounted that this is only a couple years past Manson, and that whole Manson family, even though it wasn't a biological family unit, the idea of a Manson family was still very real and very, very scary for people.
1: Well, hey, there's no women here. This may
2: not be a biological family unit either. Well, we'll talk about that. I think Leatherface does kind of play the mom role.
1: All right. So speaking of Leatherface, they find the grandfather's house and they go snooping looking for gas because they're out of gas. They stopped at the gas station and
2: they meet dad who doesn't have a name. I think he's alternately referred to as the old man or the cook. But this is the father figure of the family. He has the business. He makes the barbecue. He goes out and gets the paycheck.
1: Is there barbecue in this first movie? I know the
2: second movie is big into barbecue. We do not know... For sure that the barbecue served to them is human remains, but they do sell barbecue at the gas station, and we've established that these are people that used to kill cows, and there are no more cows to kill <laughs> in the area. So I can only put two and two together and assume that, yes, the barbecue here is, in fact— Soylent green? <laughs> yes. You got that from this opening scene?
1: Well, let me let me go into that one with you, Stuart. I understood that the slaughterhouse was still functioning, but that a lot of people got laid off due to the better killing technologies.
2: Correct. Yes. And in fact, the Hardesty kids, their grandfather made their living on a farm and he sold the cows to the slaughterhouse. Right. So there are still cows to be slaughtered in the slaughterhouse. But you, do you see any cows on that farm? I mean, I think a big part of this story is the understanding that those workers are displaced, that the, that livelihood is over, that there are no more cows to kill for them. They're not wanted. It's an automated factory now, and they're on their own. Right,
1: when, right. I got right. that the family is laid off slaughterhouse workers. Yeah, We're all going all the way back to granddad. Which leads to another question, are they related to the grandfather in the grave? But the other part was, though, just because there were no cows on that farm doesn't mean there's no cows in the area. The slaughterhouse is still
0: producing a lot of meat. I think in the van with the hitchhiker and with Franklin, they described the new techniques, yada, yada, yada. So what I understood it to be was these people are laid off and they have no jobs and later on when they actually start killing people when we see in the movie they're doing it like the old fashioned slaughterhouse ways they used to do it and that's what, that's what the whole thing in the van was about when we go meet the family later on, that's why their M.O. is because that's what they know how to do and they, they're compelled to do this because that's not what they know how to do and they need to do it. It's tradition, did,
2: it's family tradition, yeah.
0: But I did not get any of that from this first scene at the gas station I didn't even know this guy was connected until later on when she escapes
1: and in fact that's one of the great reveals of the movie is because you think she's found safety in this kindly old man and then nope he's with him
0: i agree completely and it's it's again house of a thousand corpses they had a similar thing there and
1: And they both ran gas stations and hawked food chili or chicken
2: arnie when will you admit that rob zombie is a plagiarist (laughs) i'm not arguing it Okay, All right. But again, what I find so striking is that you can be so hard on Texas Chainsaw Massacre and so supportive of Zombie.
1: Sometimes the remake is better than the original.
2: Can you articulate for me? Is it anything more than aesthetic? Is it just that Rob's movie looks good to you? And this one looks unappetizing to you. There's also acting. There's sound quality you can't tell me the acting in rob zombie movies is great they're not they're terrible i personally think that
1: outside of a few low budget porns i've not seen acting worse than i've seen in texas chainsaw massacre one
2: i'm not arguing that the acting here is good none of these people
1: went on to work hardly ever again and you mentioned charles oh there's there's Jamie Lee
2: Curtis here. There's no Kevin Bacon. There's no, nobody no. that shot no. out of this cast and went on to other things. Absolutely no, not. No. And nor should you expect that because <laughs> other than maybe the people playing the family, I do like the old man and I do like the hitchhiker. I think they have a funny vibe about them. But you know, it's limited. Like what? A, what? A, you know, a guest spot on Hee Haw. Whatever they're gonna go <laughs> on to. There's there's, no, yeah. there's nothing else.
0: All the stuff at the grandfather's house. All the stuff at the gas station. All of this stuff. There's no. Actual physical violence happens until they get to the shed when they get lost going to the water. Kirk, so
2: Kirk's the first one to go. And I didn't right. read the counter, but it's what, at least half an hour into the movie. At least,
0: right? At least. And then when it happens, the violence happens, it happens quick. And then there's 20 minutes left of the movie. It's amazing how this movie just takes this time. And so when it does actually happen, to me, it was more horrific because it just came boom. Like suddenly, like matter of fact, boom.
1: So – Kirk goes into the house and we get our first appearance of Leatherface, our hero of the story.
0: Yes, <laughs> yeah. hero.
1: And what an entrance he makes. I really love that scene. It is brutal and fast and
0: furious. I loved how he got hit in the head. He fell like a sack of bricks. It was matter of fact, open the door, boom, you're down. In today's world, it'd be a close-up. It'd be Kirk's face. It would be a leather face going, roar. you see the hammer go up. It was just a big wide shot. Boom, and the head falls down. What's funny is they filmed all of that.
1: I saw it in the outtakes. They filmed the close-ups. They filmed Kirk's face. But what was also interesting to me is he didn't go down with one blow. Just like the Hitchhiker said, they don't always die the first time. You got to keep hitting them. Yeah. And so it
2: took a few whacks. And there's something very real about it. I mean, I think when you overplay music and use close ups and show lots of blood, the audience becomes engaged with oh, how did they do that? Here, by basically doing it in a long shot, by basically having it all take place in a door frame some distance from the camera, it just feels very final and very real. Like, I I can't emphasize enough, there's just something about a man falling over and his leg jerking that's much more violent to me than if it had been close-ups of the brain matter spattering everywhere. I think they didn't have the money to do that, and with the less is more mentality, they had to cut around that, and it ended up being their friend. Like you mentioned Brock with Jaws, sometimes when things aren't available to you technically you find a new way of doing it and it can actually work much better there's very little blood in texas chainsaw massacre it's hardly a massacre and yet every death in here is so powerful i can't emphasize enough the way kirk goes down and certainly the way his uh, girlfriend pam gets it in the next scene is just really icky
0: I completely agree, and I didn't realize they didn't even have the budget for splatter, because later on in the movie, I think when Franklin gets it, there's a little bit of splatter, but even when Kirk gets chopped up, there's no splatter, and nowadays you see tons of spurting blood everywhere on his apron, on the girl, it would get everywhere, not only was Kirk's death really effective and kind of haunting, the girl's death right afterwards was...
2: That meat hook. uh, Again, when you talk about shots, and this is what I want to emphasize about how good this movie is shot, they enter the kitchen and in the foreground, in focus, is the hook and Leatherface dragging her is out of focus and you immediately know where this is going to end and that is great filmmaking. That is powerful. Right there. And the simple device of just planting her up up there. At one point they talked about having the hook come out through the front of her and seeing blood and all of that. Absolutely not. It is way more powerful to watch her just dropped on there like a Christmas tree ornament and just scream.
1: Here's the problem I have with that. I disagree with you, Stuart, because there's a jump cut, and it just steals the reality out of that moment, and it's because they didn't have a good enough harness. They didn't have the best effects people, and so when you're watching that scene, he lifts her up, and then there's a jump cut, and now she's on the hook. I'm sorry. You don't. You may not need her coughing up blood and the spear coming out from her chest, but I need to believe she was really put on a hook and not that they cut and set up a different scene and then put her in a harness, which is what this screamed to me. This has been repeated in later Texas Chainsaw movies far better than it was originally here, even though the original has the shock.
0: I thought it was incredibly effective. I thought the jump cut, what you're talking about, I thought her body just slipped right on it. That's how I took it because I was in the scene. I was there with them. I got everything Stuart got and more, I think, because not only did she get put up on that hook after that thing was in foreground and your brain worked it and they put her on there. But then she watched – as she was dying and she could hardly struggle, she watched her boyfriend get chopped to bits. And that whole scene, that whole idea what was going through her mind at that moment was that is – intense. That was horrific, but it wasn't gory, bloody, disgusting. It was a lot of me working on it and them showing it to me, and I thought it was visceral. It's it's horrible, but it's not disgusting in in other ways that I've seen other horror movies to me like it was horrifying to me but I wasn't disgusted by it and it was interesting to me and I felt terrible for that girl so the jump cut worked for me Arnie but I see what you're saying I didn't get taken out of the moment by it but unfortunately you did.
1: Yeah and it's a very powerful image and i wish that if they'd executed it a hair better then yes i'd have been totally on it but just the way it happened it it sucked me out of it and again that's what i'm gonna say is this is a movie full of great great ideas of horror and they just didn't execute it quite right and this is the epitome of that but you keep talking about how there's no gore what what i found interesting when listening to the director's commentary is toby hooper was under the impression this was going to be a pg rated film
2: I know. Isn't that great? Yeah. Isn't it, that yeah. great? How delusional do you have to be to think your Texas Chainsaw Massacre could slip by with the PG? I think he just wanted to ensure that it could get the most audience and the teenage audience that they were going for. That's what he was really saying. But come on, man. And then it ends up being banned in countries for decades.
1: <laughs> well, that's why there's no blood, though, is that he intentionally tried to keep bleeding to a minimum because he was working with the MPAA every step of the way. And they're like, well, just don't put a lot of blood in it. and Maybe we'll give you a PG. And no, no, even without the blood.
2: Yeah, no. And the MPAA, is that's a fool's journey to try and cut uh, a horror movie for their satisfaction. <laughs> that, that cannot be done. They are
1: even yeah. in the 70s.
2: Yes, yes. It's not even a about the blood they claim it's always about the blood but truly it's about the content itself and so yes toby hooper was quite delusional to think that he could he could do that but again what a gift because it allowed him to create for me a much more effective horror movie i am glad this movie is not gory because it allows it to be something much
0: more intense Mm -hmm. so you know guys when two of my friends disappear for a few hours it gets dark starting to get dark you know what i do I go to the exact same place they were to look for them. Don't you...
1: Well, yes, actually, I do, because (laughs) I'm not going to call the cops just because two of my friends went sneaking out. And
2: how could you call them anyway? This is the (laughs) 70s. No cell phones.
1: So, yeah, Jerry goes into the house, has the same problem, finds Pam (laughs) in the freezer. Now, Mm. after Jerry dies, though, is one of my favorite moments in the film. You get kind of a quiet, contemplative moment with Leatherface because he kills Jerry. They just kind of sits there and licks his teeth for a little bit. And, mm-hmm. I, and I'm trying to figure out what the hell's going on in Leatherface's mind. There is he thinking we we got a lot of meat for the chili now.
2: I do think that's exactly what was going on in in that mind, and is that he doesn't have to worry about animal parts or waiting for the brother to come home with dead bodies from crips that that fresh meat.
1: Or or was he just thinking why are all these people in my fucking house?
2: Well, that well, he that, that's what's interesting about Leatherface is that he is not out there trying to get. The meat. He is the mom that stays at home and cooks the dinner, but he is not the breadwinner. That is his dad and his brother's job. Well, his and
1: dad is just the cook. The brother I took was the killer. So the brother killed the people normally. Leatherface right. then filleted the meat. He prepares
2: the meat and, and the dad, dad yes, cooks it. Cooks right. the, actually does the barbecuing, per se. But yes, I, I definitely see that... Leatherface is playing the mom role here, that he is the stay-at-home, and by mom, I mean the 50s idealized version of stay-at-home, you're in the kitchen where you belong.
1: He even has lipstick on that leather mask of his, and in a cutscene, you actually get to see him reapply the makeup. So, in addition to having a fetish for human flesh, he's also a bit of a cross-dresser. He has the
2: wig on too, right? Is that a wig?
1: I just thought it was curly mountain hair.
2: No, that's, that's definitely a woman's wig. Oh, yeah,
1: didn't catch yeah.
2: that.
0: And I thought he freaked out a little bit after the third guy got in there went to the window and was like, how many more are there? And yes. then he had his moment. <laughs>
2: I love yeah. that about him. Like yeah. I said, that this was an invasion of his home. How does he stop these people from invading his life? That It's yeah. not the M.O. of a usual... I mean, Freddy wouldn't be that way. If Jason isn't that way. This is very much a neurotic, you know, like this is a, a shut-ins mentality. And that's, in a strange way, kind of charming about Leatherface, is that he he just wants to be home alone and run the household and have his family sit at the table together. That's really all that he wants.
0: Now, Arnie just said it was a leather mask, and I took it to be a tanned human face, right? Because it has the eyebrows on it. Right, right, yes. So, uh, leather face is is because they actually treated the skin. I mean, where does the name come from? Because it's this human skin turn leathery when it's I me. Mean, I don't know. Animal hide is leather, you know. They
2: never call him Leatherface, correct? In the movie, that is something that has been probably used to identify him after the fact. Interestingly,
1: the original title of this movie was going to just be Leatherface. Mm. And then they went to head Cheese, Yeah. And then it... came the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So Leatherface was the moniker beforehand. So it was probably also used in the script. But then they changed yeah. the title in post. Mm-hmm. Interesting.
2: Okay. Well, I'm glad they did, because it is so much more than him. The family dynamics, for me, is where it's at. It's really not a Leatherface show. He's an interesting component, and certainly he has the thing that all horror movie villains much have, which is the, the mask, the thing that abstracts you and prevents you from seeing the humanity, you know? You always have to remove that sense of identification, and what better way than having someone else's face pulled, stretched over your own, I mean... It's it's very effective.
1: Ah, but you're missing the other thing he has that all serial killers must have, and that's an iconic weapon.
2: Yes, he does have that.
1: He has the chainsaw, whereas the hitchhiker just has a razor blade, and the old man just... As a, stick. a broom,
2: yeah, as a broom. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Can I just say when Sally makes it back and he takes her down with a broom again? That's where I see comedy in this. I mean, it's not funny, ha ha, comedy, but it's kind of a wry, evil sensibility. You know, you you laugh in spite of yourself after you get done being horrified.
1: But Leatherface with the chainsaw is, you know, Freddy with the glove, Jason with the machete, Michael with the knife. It's the iconic weapon that I identifies and gives you something to latch onto with him, and the wonderful sound the chainsaw makes. We talked a little bit about the score here. This movie doesn't really have much of a score. It has the humming of a chainsaw,
0: and that's just as effective. Especially later in the movie, at the climax of the movie, it doesn't have any music at all. It just has the sound of the chainsaw, and I thought that was a really great idea for basically what she's hearing in the dark when they're running around. I thought that was really great.
2: Yeah, well, when he comes out and gets Franklin with it, I mean, it really comes out of left field. I think that's the most important part of the chainsaw use. Like, that's the one part where I felt like, ah, yes, that's why it has to be a chainsaw and no other. Because when Leatherface comes out of the dark and is just all of a sudden goes from complete quiet to that sound and he's going to town on the guy in the chair, that's when you know where you are.
1: And I actually had in my notes when I was watching this, Franklin is so fucking annoying, why won't he just die already? And as if on cue, Leatherface took care of that problem for me.
2: Yes, he definitely did.
1: It's still too late. I really think that, again, Hooper didn't rein in that actor enough or didn't edit it right. He he was the Jar Jar Binks of this movie, but he got what Jar Jar didn't, which was a chainsaw.
2: (laughs) It's an unfortunate performance. I I can't defend it. It is way too whiny. The actor, even in subsequent, documentaries admits that franklin is someone that you just can't stand to be around and that a lot of the his woe is me is the reason why no one is helping him out and hanging around i wish they had played a different characterization with him would it have been so bad for you to think he was the smartest person on screen at times he is at, I,
1: I, at times I, I i wondered if he was mentally challenged
2: yeah I know
1: because he just would go on and on and have a social retardation. Yeah. Second to none.
2: Yeah. He would make uh, yeah those like mocking sounds where he would like, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. And like keep repeating it. It is like, yeah, it, it's kind of ridiculous.
1: But here's the thing. As happy as I was to see Franklin die, you know. I don't mind a movie having low gore factor. I really don't. What I mind is a movie having a low realism factor. And when we see Leatherface chop up Franklin, it is quite clear the chainsaw is coming nowhere near Franklin, like feet away from Franklin.
2: I didn't have this horrible problem that you had. I bought into it completely. I mean, I guess I am forgiving in a way that you're not when violence happens because my need for it to be real is not that high. Implied violence works fine for me. That's great.
1: I don't need to see the chainsaw cutting into the flesh. I don't. But I need to believe that I'm not seeing it two feet away and just seeing an actor shake. I need to at least believe the reality of the moment. There needs to be a suspension of disbelief that this movie could not give me due to its poor workmanship.
0: And I and I had that. I had it in the other scene we talked about earlier with the hook. I had it here, too. I didn't mind so much.
1: And this is funny because, Brock, you're the one who in all these horror movies are like, well, I know how it was done and I can see the yeah. mask here it's blatantly obvious. There's neon signs saying how fake all of this is, and you're like, well, I went with it. I, I don't get why you're saying you go with it this time, and every other time you're like, well, I see the mask.
0: It's completely obvious to me why, because this movie is constructed in a way that up until this point, I am invested in what's going on because of the way the movie is made. The way this movie is unfolding, the way this movie is shot, the way this movie is telling me this story, has invested me, the viewer, So I am able to give them the concessions here and there when I know how things are done to take the journey the filmmaker wants me to go on. When the whole movie is a piece of crap from the get-go... I am less likely to give the concessions to the movie maker to tell me the story he wants to tell because it's a bunch of baloney. Here they're actually doing something that I'm into that I understand and I'm going along with the story. Is that does that make any sense?
1: Well, I can't I can't see why you'd connect with this one because here I had so much trouble. I find the film to be a little bit poorly paced. There's a long time of building and it would be great if there was a single character here I could connect to, but the only character whose name I really got on my first viewing was Franklin that that's because I hated the son of a bitch. There was nobody in this movie for me to root for, except in the case of Franklin's death, I was rooting for Leatherface.
0: I didn't need the character this time to root for. What I was invested was with the hitchhiker got me in the setup, and then when the kids got to where they were going, I was waiting for the v- v- proverbial shit to hit the fan. And as then we got when Leatherface hit Kirk in the head. That was it. And I was like, wow. The, the, the horror of this movie is not about the typical kind of horror that we've seen so far in a lot of these horror movies we've watched. The horror of this movie is, is just the one thing after another. and this, this, this keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And it's not about the gore. It's about this – not only about the killing but it's about the psychological crap that this kid watches her boyfriend get chopped up right in front of her while hanging from a hook. That kind of stuff invests me in it not so I don't have to worry about how I can see the chainsaw, Miss Franklin. Yeah, I agree with you. Franklin was really annoying, but it this movie had me going on its journey, which is why I'm able to do that. You didn't get that experience from this movie, but I was able to. I'm not disagreeing with you, Arnie. This movie looks dated and things like that, but I'm able to take the experience... That the filmmaker wants me to get.
2: And I will just argue for the sake of posterity one more time. Its rawness is part of its charm. The fact that all of these effects aren't 100% slick gives you a different feeling coming away from it. It makes you feel dirty. I feel dirty watching this movie Mm. in a way that I don't watching a Nightmare on Elm Street 4. And a part of that, too, is that we have killers with an entirely different methodology. That Leatherface, because he's mentally challenged and because this is a normal thing for him, like this violence is just the way that his family exists, he isn't... Trying to calculate in the way that so many horror villains are. You know, so many, like Jason is all about how can I pop up at the right moment and get the girl. Or Freddy is like how do I make them fall asleep and get into my clutches. You feel that there's a scheming involved. There is no scheming here. The plan is as as deep as get the bucket to put under the girl on the hook so that she'll bleed into it. And it won't be a mess. Like that's that's it. That's as, as deep as he gets in his mentality of it.
1: So now we get to another, what is now a cliche, the final girl running from the killer. And we get the chase, and the old man reveals himself, as we talked about.
2: Well, this is where the movie changes tone. You know, I feel Mm -hmm. like up to this point, we've been following the kids. And once she's knocked out by the broom, of all things, and the hitchhiker comes back into the picture, and it becomes about the bickering and and the whatever, it definitely changes tone. And it becomes much more intensely perverse, and in a weird way, a little bit more funny. I can see you guys are resisting the funny part. I
0: I think I understand finally what you mean by funny in this final scene, but it's not funny in the way I think funny is. I'll say
1: there is one thing that is funny as I think funny is, and that's Grandpa with the hammer. Yes, (laughs) Yes.
2: that is absolutely that is a comic bit. And it's great. It plays... It couldn't be more horrifying. That right. Like, okay, here's your final moments. We got you right here. Your head's in a bucket. And this you know notorious killer is about to take you out. But he's so old and feeble that he can't even swing the hammer and it keeps dropping right in front of you. I mean, can you imagine? You would want to be just like, get it over with. I can't take it anymore. It's the, it's the psychology of having to understand your fate that makes it so horrifying. I mean, if if she could just be you know, killed like cattle and and not know it's coming, it would be one thing. But the fact that it's there and that he keeps dropping it, I mean, it's so crazy. It really is the climax of the movie, and it's also the best scene in the movie. It's so over the top. You can't even believe what you're watching. That scene where he cuts her finger and Grandpa is just sucking it, that still just gives me the willies. It's just... Ugh.
1: Did you guys go with the grandpa character? Because there's the scene where she's running from Leatherface and she goes into the room and finds these decrepit bodies all like Psycho and Mother, but then you find out that the decrepit grandpa is actually somewhat alive if not all that mobile and able to suck her blood. Did did you roll with that? I, that one kind of, I, I did roll with it because it was crazy and out there, but it, it certainly doesn't fit the rest of the realism of this movie. It kind of becomes was fantastical with
2: Grandpa. Yeah, well, yes, it is a fantastical, over-the-top movie at this point. Yeah, I agree, and and any sense of realism is kind of going out the window at that. I I loved it. I mean, Grandpa, this whole thing was been about getting back to see Grandpa, her Grandpa, and lying just beyond that is this family. I mean, they're almost like. Shadow – I mean I think that's the satirical part. That's Toby Hooper saying this is the real family, that just beyond what you think of as the wholesome and nostalgic is this. And I think you had to have a grandpa character because he's the whole motivator to get these kids here on the farm in the first place.
0: You know – I I did think the grandfather was a little over the top, and I thought with her screaming the whole time when she woke up and realized, oh, crap, I'm still in this mess, it was certainly disturbing. I thought this whole end of the scene where I see where you're coming from with this comedic element, especially with the hammer thing, which – I completely agree with both of your sentiments on that that moment in the movie. I, I found it disturbing, and I found it really disturbing because this girl is in a heap of trouble, and these people are enjoying every second of it. And the father says, "I don't, I don't want to torture. I don't think I don't want to do torture," and yet that's what they're doing to this. And girl. that's
2: what I mean by the comedy. That's the satire. like here you have the man that makes the human barbecue, and he doesn't want to do the killing. Like he that's wants to torture. He doesn't want yeah. to torture. He wants to. Kill. I, I mean, that's sort of a, a paradox of American diet. You know, it's like we want to eat the animals, but we don't like the slaughter. And, and, and uh, it's uh, the whole it,
1: Chick fil A eat more chicken ad campaign.
2: Yeah, the, um, advertising has existed to get us over the hump of feeling bad about animal slaughter. And well, I don't think this movie is about turning to a vegan way of life, but I do think it is throwing a hypocrisy about our nonchalance towards violence right back at us and i think it does so very very well
0: i also got that he one of them wants to play with his food and one of them doesn't i mean that kind of thing if you want to say an underlining humor joke thing they're fine but yeah Who i wanted did.
1: to play with their food i didn't get that the hitchhiker well i thought the hitchhiker just wanted her dead and so that's why he was forcing grandpa's hand literally yes literally Um. forcing grandpa's (laughs) hand because grandpa couldn't get the job done well enough and so he's like taking the hand and doing it himself because he's the the heir apparent of the killer right because that's his job now is to kill them even though leatherface has been doing
2: i think that this is the scene that takes this movie up to the next level that had, I watched everything in this movie before she got kidnapped. I would say, well, it was good for its time, but it's clearly dated now. And even though like, like you're saying, Arnie, you can cherry pick moments and all. It's just kind of a crude movie When we get here in this house with this dinner scene, I can feel everything ratchet up and hit a new peak. And it makes me want to recommend the movie now for this movie because these last moments are so horrific and so dead on and finally bring this movie to some kind of amazing climax.
1: I will completely agree with you. First of all, with the cherry picking that yes, you can cherry pick some great things out of the sense scene. The dinner scene is great. However, getting there, there is a lot of chasing and a lot of screaming and the score of pans banging against each other. I understand intellectually what was trying to happen. Toby Hooper wasn't thinking home video. Toby Hooper was thinking, you're going to be in a theater in a dark room with other people and this sound, this cacophony is going to unsettle you. And you're going to be unsettled with the visuals and you're going to be unsettled with the audio and you're going to be unsettled hearing the screams of the slaughter and it's going to unnerve you and horrify you in that way. You want to know what it did to me? It it annoyed the shit out of me. It made me turn down the volume because it was like how much banging of pans am I going to listen to? That that's the thing is this whole movie is like there's some great things here but
2: man there's also some shit that just ruins the whole thing. I'm not sure I totally follow your argument. I know I don't agree with it, but I'm not sure I follow it. You're <laughs> you're saying that this movie's score is actually a detriment to the enjoyment of the slaughter.
1: I could find no enjoyment in watching this movie with all of this blaring noise coming out of my surround sound.
2: I thought the score was awesome. I just I, We're just at aesthetic odds here. I thought it was so great. I, I, can't,
1: I can't believe you even call it a score. <laughs> it's cacophony. It's noise. It's as much of a score as feedback from a microphone too close to a
2: speaker. I think that uh, that can work. I mean, I listen to experimental music and I think in this instance, this score is incredibly effective and thematically well tied into what they're doing with the story. Uh, the fact that it does sound like a, massacre in a kitchen is exactly right. I mean, so much about the sound is the way that it blends. I mean, sometimes you don't know if it's a score or whether it's a sound happening inside the house. You know, like there's the part where she falls into the room and the chickens are clucking and you don't know whether it's laughter or... I mean, there's so much richness in that they get out of the sounds here. And you're right. Is it a score? Is it is it sound effects? Is it practical sounds? I don't know. I, but I think it's so much of the movie as in a lot of horror movies is made in the the soundtrack here and i think i think it's incredible and let me put it this way if you didn't enjoy the movie i would think that you wouldn't have enjoyed what they're doing with the sound and the score if you don't get that then you're probably not going to like the movie.
1: No, it just it ruined my ability to enjoy the movie. It made me want to turn the movie off. And what good things there were with the grandpa and the hammer and the family dinner, it didn't overcome the fact that I was getting a headache from the sounds coming out. And just, you know, get me a Mancini score and... My overall feeling on this movie might change. But the way it was delivered, I think he was trying to, like you said, with experimental music, he was trying to be experimental and unsettle you by creating this horrible noise. But instead of unsettling me, it had the opposite effect and just pissed me off.
0: I think also that Stuart and I, again, took the ride with the movie a little longer than you did. And therefore, the music or the soundtrack or whatever you want to call it, complemented the experience that he and I were having. I think Stuart and I had different experiences watching this movie also, but I think ours are closer than yours are. It didn't take us out of the movie, much like those effects earlier in the movie took you out of it also. We were able to use it as part of the experience of what the director was giving us here with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So she
1: finally escapes out the window, and we get the final chase of
0: Leatherface, the Hitchhiker... And Sally, I love that she got out of there. I loved earlier when she jumped out the window. I just love that she took the opportunity she had and got the heck out of Dodge and that she had a fighting chance. And, and that to me is, is something in horror movies that I like that we've talked about that in other podcasts. And I thought that was great. I didn't know she was going to survive. I didn't know. But I was damn happy she got out of that house of horrors and, and at least had a running fighting chance. I was glad it was daylight. You know, that's kind of unexpected. I figured
1: she'd be running at night, so it was cool to see this whole thing in daylight. And I just say my favorite character in the whole movie is perhaps the trucker who stops to help her in the
2: (laughs) bright yellow shirt and the big belly. yeah no it's that and the pickup driver that- t- picks her up there's these two characters that come out of left field where we never see them again or or know how they play out in the story it's kind of it's kind of a cheat frankly, but it is amusing to see the the truck driver run over the hitchhiker get out and then wield a what was that some kind of wrench against Leatherface and causing him to knock the chainsaw on his leg. I wish it had been her rather than a trucker. I think that's kind of cheating, but oh well.
0: It was the 70s.
1: Girls don't have the
0: strength. Did you think Flatbed, though, was like someone in the member of the family when she jumped in the flatbed at the end. She Who she is it? I mean we have
2: no idea. We never even see the person, I don't think. I mean, I couldn't tell you if it was male, female, what race, what age, nothing. And we they're just the person that, that takes her away as she's her screams turn into laughter and she's covered in blood and that incredible image of her Going away and Leatherface dancing or, or whatever he's doing on the road in, in Fury. It's-
1: I, I had to listen to the director's commentary to find out that was Leatherface's version of throwing a shit fit. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I always thought it was a dance. I, I really just thought it was the 70s and he was just doing the chainsaw dance. But
0: mm-hmm. no, he it was a big disco hit. In the yeah. Concept. Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I was thinking the uh, the Tuscan Raiders uh that he's throwing a fit you know throwing a you know a, like ah oh, son of a bitch she got away uh kind of thing that's that's exactly what i got from it but they do call it the dance <laughs> they do call it the chainsaw Well, dance. it
2: changes you know at first it feels like rage and then the more that he does it the more it feels like julie andrews on top of the alps julie <laughs> <laughs> What i'm telling you i guess i saw a different movie than you guys so,
1: Brock, Stuart, do you recommend the Texas Chainsaw Massacre,
0: Brock? I do. I took the ride, folks. I like this... The way it built, I like the way it shot. I I don't want to repeat myself completely, but I do want to say that in the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned it throughout the podcast, we talked about it, that I did see a lot of similarities between this and House of a Thousand Corpses and where I thought that went too far, this one didn't do that and told a very similar story. And this one, to me, was much more effective. This one did it with me, the viewer, as more of a participant in what made it horrific. And I think... That given what he had to work with, the result was phenomenal. And I think it is a disturbing film, and not for everybody. But if you're a horror fan, you have to watch this movie. I think it's a big step and a big piece of what horror films were. And without this, we couldn't have what we've ordered reviewed in other retrospective series. This is a a pinnacle moment in in the history of horror films. Whether or not you enjoy this one as much as other other horror films, this one certainly has so much in it that other places have cribbed from or or borrowed from, and it, it just where it began. So for those reasons and because I enjoyed most of the movie, I'm going to give it a a recommend. Not the strongest recommend, but certainly a a recommend to check this out. Stuart.
2: Well, here's the actuality. You probably have already seen this movie, even if you haven't seen it. Its influence is, its net is so big that it is, if you've seen a horror movie in the last 30 years, so much of the boilerplate comes from this. And I do think that If you've seen those, and particularly if you've seen a lot of them, coming back to this, you might feel like it's slow. You might wonder what the big deal is. Well, I'll tell you what this movie has that a lot of the wrong turns, motel hells, hills have eyes don't have, and that is legitimacy this thing has an authenticity in its rawness that feels powerful. It feels real. It comes from a sick, dirty place. And it still has that power. That last scene still can transport me into the crazy half laughing, half shrieking much like uh, Sally. I feel just like her watching those last 20 minutes in the van covered in blood of like, I can't believe the madness that this place has gone to and for those reasons i definitely say as a horror archivist you have to go back and see it but i'm going to say this It may be one of the first slasher movies. It's not the first movies to deal with hillbillies. I think Deliverance is an excellent film. I think this movie took a lot from Deliverance, and I think it's a better film. I think Psycho is a better film. Obviously, they're not any better than Alfred Hitchcock, and that certainly, one day we'll get to that retrospective as well. I don't think this is a great classic movie maybe its reputation is a little overblown but it's legit and it has a place in the horror annals and it should be seen by those that care about such things so recommend
1: I don't think, despite how this podcast has gone, that our opinions are all that different, because both of you in your final comments said exactly what I had planned to say for my final comment, and that is that this is a seminal horror film, this is from which it all began, any horror archivist needs to go back and see this, it's required reading for horror fans in order to see, but I'm coming down on the side of not recommend, and i beg our listeners on the forums and Facebook and Twitter to not string me up by my toenails for that. But I on the hook. On the <laughs> hook, hook. Yes. Re- I can't recommend this as an entertaining movie. I say yes. It is required homework for horror fans and there's some great moments here that would be completely stolen later in films that are more polished and more entertaining overall to watch because they come in a nicer package. As it is, there's so much in this movie that is cheap, that is poorly delivered. And, yeah, as Stewart said, the stuff that is original, you've seen before if you've seen any horror film. So, no, I can't recommend this, despite the fact that it pains me to not recommend something that I consider a classic. But just because it's a classic doesn't mean that it's enjoyable to watch today. So, no, I do not recommend the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
2: Wow. That's... Okay. Well, you know what? We will have this debate throughout the series, but I know that as we head towards the ones you like, I'm going to have a lot of counterpoint for you, Arnie.
1: I'm sure that this entire conversation will just continue and slowly turn the other way as I become more recommending and you become less recommending.
2: That's my expectation. Now, keep in mind, I've only seen two and the remake, so I don't know what some of these other sequels have in store, but my expectation is that nothing will hit the heights of what we just watched and that this may, in fact, be a downward slide much steep. like
0: Halloween or Friday the Thirteenth, or well, there life. was still uh,
2: there was still some high points throughout those series. I, I Halloween, I liked Part Seven. I liked the Rob Zombie take on it, pretty much. But yes, there usually isn't, and this is my philosophy on most franchises there usually isn't a better version than the the original and you might get a couple recommends but i'm not even sure i'm going to recommend any of the ones to come
1: i know this isn't the lowest point of the series because i have i've seen most of these two and three are the only ones that are brand new to me for this podcast series i know there's going to be some that i unrecommend or not recommend more than i don't recommend this one i can respect this movie but I can't enjoy this movie.
0: Fair enough. If you enjoy listening to our show, please go to NowPlayingPodcast.com, go to our archive section, check out all the other retrospective series that we've alluded to today Friday the 13th, the Halloween, House of a Thousand Corpses, a whole bunch of great podcasts listened to in our archive section at NowPlayingPodcast.com. If you enjoy this conversation, join in the conversation while following us on Facebook. And you can find us on Twitter. We're now playing Pod. And you can also go to our homepage and find a link to our forums where you'll find a thread all about this movie and every other movie we've ever talked about. And you can talk about those movies there with fans like yourself. And we implore you, if you enjoyed this podcast and our other podcasts, please go on iTunes and leave us a positive review so other people like yourself can find us and we can continue to bring these podcasts to you and our other listeners. And in addition
1: to asking for reviews, we're going to ask you for one other thing. Money. Yes! (laughs) I want me gold! (laughs) Oh, no, no, not Leprechaun, not yet. We have been taking donations for a while. We're going to up the ante a little bit, though. We are going to offer an incentive for you to help support Now Playing. We're basically doing a membership drive, like PBS.
0: (laughs) Asking for donations, you mean?
1: yes we we are offering a uh, the digital equivalent of a tote bag if, if you donate <laughs> to now playing in addition to Texas Chainsaw Massacre Stuart Brock and myself are reviewing the child's play series oh and, <laughs> is this news to you stuart <laughs> yeah.
2: okay i am not always watching texas chainsaw massacre too all right child's play
1: but if you want to hear a child's play, between now and October 31st, donate at least $10 to Now Playing. And then you will be emailed links to where you can get all five Child's Play episodes. But if you have more, please give.
2: I'll say because this is becoming like a full-time job. I mean, now I got to watch all the Child's Play and the Texas Chainsaw? You better (laughs) donate good for this. Good. I want to see some double, triple digits.
1: I'll, I'll tell you this, though. Stuart has me on the hook. I'm betting on our listeners because I have talked to Stuart about some plans for next year. And, and Stuart's like, "Well, there better be money." So, <laughs> so is, am I lying? Am I mischaracterizing you? No, I, I you? think
2: I think that's exactly how I said it. <laughs> it's Just like that. In fact, like Arnold Drummond. <laughs>
1: So, even if you're not so into Child's Play, donate anyway, get Child's Play, enjoy it, and then next year, I've got some more things that we wouldn't normally do. Now, we're going to keep coming out on the regular feed and doing the movies we do. We're just going to do even more for those of you who support our show.
2: Basically, stop talking in code. It's like a dunk tank. If you want to <laughs> see me fall into a big, slimy pit, <laughs> you throw some money, and believe me, Arnie's got the pit waiting. <laughs> And for those who
1: go way above and beyond, I'm even going to throw in our San Diego Comic-Con podcast. Oh,
2: that's a good one. That's a good one. You want that one.
1: (laughs) That is a good show. I feel like it needs to go out to more people, and so we're going to do that, too. So the donate button is at the bottom of the Now Playing homepage. And don't worry, we're still here week after week. we got Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Then Jacob and Marjorie join us again for Saw 7 as we cap off that series. Then we've got Rambo. Because that's exactly what you think of when you think of Thanksgiving as Rambo. Absolutely.
2: We're all grateful for Rambo 3, I know. Yes. Oh, yeah. so <laughs> Thank you, Rambo, for giving me Al-Qaeda.
1: <laughs> and then we're going to cap off the year with Tron. So we're going to have all this coming to you, but we would appreciate your support. So from Bartles and
0: Brock... Thank you for your support. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And don't forget to buy a T-shirt. So we'll reconvene talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, (laughs) do?
1: Next week. If my video store can find it, because I keep calling them and saying, do you have it? And they say yes, and then they try to give me the beginning.
0: Yeah, it's a difficult one to find. All
1: right. But if we can find it, we'll be back next week. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye he's out there with a chainsaw no he had a chainsaw, he was chasing me with a
0: chainsaw thank you for listening to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre retrospective series from Now Playing it's what the public wants come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week as we cut into a new installment in this classic franchise
2: people may not remember what we say here tonight but they sure as shit gonna remember what we do
0: you can find other Now Playing retrospective series, such as Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Terminator, Star Trek, and others, at our website. Me and Bubba, my little brother, we listen to you every night. Go to NowPlayingPodcast.com and click the archives link to find those series, as well as individual movie reviews, such as Avatar and Inception. we got the means, we got the machines. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Texas Chainsaw Massacre films with other podcast listeners. First, I'm gonna kill you. It ain't no fucking biggie. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post new episodes, and the Now Playing hosts post movie mini reviews. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com.
2: Welcome!
1: To my
0: world. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. If you enjoy Now Playing, please support the show. You can find a link to donate to the show using PayPal on our homepage, or you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more at the Now Playing Cafe Press Store. If you need anything, just tweet. <laughs> And remember, if you make a donation of $10 or more made by October 31st, 2010, you will receive as our thank you the exclusive now-playing Child's Play retrospective series. Now playing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series is edited by Jay and Arnie.
2: Boys, you never should have been doing this.
0: Now Playing is not affiliated with New Line Cinema, Canon Films, Columbia Pictures, or Platinum Dunes. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the intellectual property of its copyright and trademark holders, and no infringement is intended. i speak plain. Saves time. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2010. Razos. Razoski. Yippee-yay.
1: I only saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1987 thanks to the Mark Harmon movie Summer School.
0: Mm, yes. They go together so well. I thought – wasn't Summer School a sequel? Well, it's
1: another podcast, but I really think Summer School started the entire teacher-student movies, Dead Poet Society, Dangerous Minds. All of that goes back to Mark Harmon. but oh, in-
0: it, Really? Not, not Sidney <laughs> not, uh, Poitier?
1: No, Mark Harmon. <laughs>
0: okay. I just want to put that out there for you.
2: Yeah. Cinema history, out the window. It starts with Mark. Yeah.
1: And shoot, <laughs> everybody knows John Lerocat. He just won an Emmy a couple of years ago for his
0: work on The Practice. Yeah, the uh, Emmys are probably the least watched award watch show. No, that would be the Tonys. Oh,
2: probably yeah, okay. that is the Tonys. Maybe,
0: okay. <laughs> anyway, so we have a Star Wars-type crawl, wouldn't you say? No, of course not.
2: The more it feels like Julie Andrews on top of the Alps. Julie Andrews. <laughs> <laughs>
0: what i'm
2: telling you i guess i saw a different movie than you guys
1: the hills are alive with the sound of chainsaws singing this goodbye song son has gone to sleep and so must die she drives away in the back of the pickup so brock stewart do
0: you recommend the texas chainsaw massacre brock wow i get to go first first time ever i get to go first